Hello everyone and welcome to the Slash Filmcast. I'm David Chen and with me are Mr. Hardware, Jeff Kanata. And joining us today, he is the host of the Amazing Spider Talk podcast, Dan Gvozdin. Welcome back to the Slash Filmcast. Dan, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm thrilled to be back here. And we are glad to have you back because today, for our featured review on the Slash Filmcast, we're going to be discussing Spider-Man Far From Home, or as I refer to it, Spider-Man Far From Home. Um, Dan is just it's just it's just amazing that there are so many spider movies coming out. We just get to come back over and over. <laughs> it's like spider movie, spider movie, spider movie. Dan Gavazza, Dan Gavazza, Dan Gavazza. It's just uh, it's crazy. Here. Indeed, indeed. Um, I've like assured myself a fourth spot on the show every six months. <laughs> I'm just uh, hitching to that wagon. Yeah. Well, looking forward to chatting about it with you, Dan. You can find uh, more episodes of this podcast at slashfilmcast.com. You can also email us at slashfilmcast at gmail.com. We're going to start with some follow-up this week, follow-up to last week's discussion about yesterday, move on into some what we've been watching, and then conclude with our in-depth review of Spider-Man. So let's get to it. Uh, Jeff Kanata, I think you wanted to like address something regarding our our conversation about yesterday right and and we should say that we talked about yesterday last week uh very very minor spoilers for yesterday will follow in the next few minutes to to kind of refer back to our conversation from last week um but yeah jeff take it away well i just wanted to mention that there we have the slack film cast which is a wonderful community really truly wonderful community of people who are on Slack and talking about the podcast, talking about movies, talking about all kinds of stuff. Yeah. Sign up at slackfilmcast.com. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I very much enjoy reading all of the discussion that happens there. And I think the people that participate are, are just, just great. Uh, so this isn't to say anything other than that. I, I really enjoyed some pushback, uh, in my, uh, on my, uh, some pushback to my review of uh, yesterday in the Slack film cast. This um, comes from Hysum, H-Y-S-U-M, in the in the film Slack. He, it's a pretty lengthy post. Uh, I won't try to read the whole thing, but basically he said that my review of yesterday, which was last week, uh, he thought was a little unfair to the movie because I was talking about what the movie wasn't and not taking the film on its own terms and talking about how disappointed I was that the movie didn't embrace its sci-fi-ness more and didn't explore the premise. Uh, and so he thought that I really wasn't being fair to the movie because I was talking about the movie that it wasn't rather than the movie that it was. And I think that's a, a pretty fair criticism most of the time uh, in the sense that talking about what a movie isn't oftentimes misses the point, right? You're not actually taking the movie on its own terms. You're bringing your own baggage into the film. And I think that can be leveled at, at me sometimes and at other people sometimes who talk about movies and talk about all the things that they wanted them to be, but weren't. I take issue a little bit in this particular case, because from my perspective, I thought that the movie brought up the premise. The movie established the premise and raised a bunch of really juicy, really interesting questions in its sci-fi premise. Like it, the movie was a sci-fi movie. It was this magical thing happened and that magical thing has lots of ramifications that a viewer can't help but start to imagine. In fact, the movie banks on that. The movie is 
quite literally getting my money to come in and sit down in the movie theater based on that central question. And then my, my feeling is that it just doesn't have any interest in exploring that question. It is much more interested in being a pretty bland romantic comedy. And, uh, I brought up another movie by the same writer called about time that I think does that same thing brilliantly. It actually does explore its sci-fi premise and also manages to be a very satisfying romantic comedy at the same time. So I think both this writer can do it and it can be done as a movie. I just don't think this movie did it. So while I respect the, the pushback uh, and saying, well, you're just kind of talking about what the movie isn't rather than what it is. I really, don't think that's fair in this case in the sense that the movie itself establishes the questions. The movie itself is, is using the questions as a hook and then just completely doesn't care to reel me in as a fish. It just goes, Oh, thanks. I'm glad you're hooked. Now let's talk about this love story. And, and that was my issue with the movie. I, I don't know if I agree with you about sci-fi, um, but certainly fantasy, I, I, I feel like uh, is a, is a, uh, apt description of the movie. Um, well, genre, I guess I just used that as a catch-all for genre. Yeah, you know? yeah. I, I, I would say that like, if the movie's romance was more interesting, you probably would be willing to forgive its flaws, right? I um, think that's fair, too. Yeah, yeah. I, do, I did have big problems with the romance as, as it played out in the movie, too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I read this great piece by uh, Dorian Linsky over at GQ.com that I, I felt like really summarized my problems with the movie. <clears throat> he writes here... I accept that a brisk feel-good movie stuffed with some of the most beloved songs of all time will be a massive hit, and the standard response to a music journalist complaints will be, turn off your mind, relax, and float downstream. I certainly didn't expect lost-style layers of exposition, but mainstream entertainment is perfectly capable of unpicking the darker, weirder implications of a naughty premise. It's a Wonderful Life shows the ripple effect of plucking out of the world a man who thinks he's insignificant. Back to the Future Part 2 makes the future pivot on whether or not a school bully gets hold of a sports almanac. Even Richard Curtis's own About Time makes an effort to clarify how its version of time travel functions. Yesterday, however, hits you with a mouth-watering proposition, then shows no interest in exploring it, and not in a spooky, dreamlike, life's a mystery David Lynch kind of way. Not only does Curtis not answer the questions he has raised, he doesn't even appear to notice he has asked yeah, that's very well yeah, said. Yeah, I, th I thought that was very apt. It's like not even like he's not even answering the question. It doesn't even seem like they understand that taking the Beatles out of the universe would be a like world altering It's event. a big deal. Yeah. It's a big deal. It's yeah, a big yeah. deal that like, yeah, I want to see that movie. I'm very curious about what you think happens when that movie. And they're like, yeah, I'll tell you what happens. Two people fall in love. Yeah. So like what? The... No, what? No, no, that's. <laughs> That's the least interesting part of what happens, I, you know? So. There's seemingly, like, no consequences uh, other than that this guy, you know, knows the songs and other people don't. Yeah. Uh, and that the songs never, like, charted. Um, and, uh, but but let, let, let me ask you, let me ask you, you guys a broader question that I think was raised in the, in the Slack Filmcast, which is, how do you feel about this notion of reviewing a movie or taking a movie or criticizing a movie for what it is rather than what it is not. Uh, I, I think there's an idea of like, I, I think this is something that seeps into a lot of modern film criticism, which is that, mm -hmm. uh, and something that we uh, have on occasion, if not frequently do here on the podcast, which is we often talk about the movie we wish that it had been rather than assessing what it, uh, it was, rather than what it was trying to do. But I think the thing with yesterday is, 
I think that even taken on its own terms, uh, the movie doesn't do a particularly good job. Like even if you, this is just a romantic comedy, I think that it is it, it comes up lacking. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so it's like not super original right. in that respect. Right. Yeah. If it, if it was like if it was like a super innovative romantic comedy that's like oh wow like I've never seen anything like this before. You know I rewatched Notting Hill this week. My uh, my wife was not feeling well. She put on Notting Hill in the background. And uh, that's that's still, that movie still gets to me, man. You know the like uh, I'm just Good a movie. girl standing in front of a boy, you know, asking him to love her. I mean, that is one of the classic romantic comedy lines delivered incredibly well by Julia Roberts. It's also a Richard Curtis film, and uh, you know that movie theoretically, for all its flaws, did break ground in the romantic comedy genre that I don't feel like yesterday did, um, and so. I guess what I'm saying, Jeff, is I agree you should take movies on, on their own terms, um, but I don't know that we didn't do that. You know, I think yeah, we, yeah, we yeah. actually did do that in our discussion of yesterday. Um, so that's my thoughts. I, I think a good discussion like... of a film could have a bit of both, right? Like, that's it. But yeah, I like to focus on what it is. Certainly, if you're really disappointed, like Jeff was, I could certainly see just dreaming of like what it could be. I feel like sometimes when we review a film based off of what we want it to be, it's not mm -hmm. often an unfair thing to like lobby at a film because it's often in response to questions that are presupposed that we want to see an answer to. And in yesterday's case, while I haven't seen the film and based on your accounts of it, you know, this question that's asked about removing the Beatles from the world, it's like a it's like a liberty too far if you're trying to present this world realistically which I don't know if the film does. I imagine it's probably slightly heightened, but like, I don't think it's unfair to like ask of it some things if you are going to invest your own acceptance of what it's putting forward. Um, so you're just, it's not that you're like criticizing it for what it's not. It's you're trying to believe in what it's putting forward and it's not providing the equal amount to that. Does that make mm -hmm. sense? Yeah. 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 I, I think, think that's the way I put it. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Dylan McInnes in the live chat room, we're broadcasting live as usual. Uh, reminds us, like, as Jeff mentioned, you only get to do the yesterday premise once, uh, it, which was, Jeff, very similar to your criticism of the Happy Time Murders, which is the dirty yeah. Muppet movie, right? Like, the, no one's going to be able to do another movie like yesterday for decades at least, right? Right. No, you can't do like, oh, we wake up and then there's no Beatles. Like, you, you won't be able to do that again because it's like, they, they just did that. So right. uh, that in itself, like... You had one shot. You had one shot, and you, you didn't. You didn't. Uh, you didn't really do it justice, and that's yeah. the problem. Yeah, I agree. The Happy Time Murders was the same way. You had one shot to do the R-rated Muppet movie, and this is what you made. But that's kind of an argument for like critiquing a film for what it isn't, right? Because it's like right. this is, idea of commerce also factors into the criticism, which is yeah, you only have one shot, so because the movie didn't use its one shot particularly well, you're you're more critical than you would be if it was like just a regular romantic comedy without an extremely intriguing uh, high concept premise right so but yeah. even beyond the premise is the the franchise or the 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 IP of the Beatles we don't get to see that very often so right. you think that if they're going to pull out that you know check yeah. they're going to do something really interesting with it yeah and it's it's hard to to say like what other band you could do it with that would be equally impactful you know, like, there isn't one. There isn't one. <laughs> it's not. It's not like you could do it with Avatar. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's just blow, blow, man. All right, all right. Well, anyway, thanks for all the comments <laughs> and and criticisms of uh, our discussion on yesterday. Uh, 
Also, you know, this is this is not really a spoiler. It's like an anti-spoiler. It's like telling something that doesn't happen in the movie. Um, but uh, so again, we're still in like yesterday spoiler kind of mode here. But Papool uh, f- from um, Texas wrote in to slashfilmcastgmail.com. And uh, one of the, the big gags in yesterday is the idea that uh, like when he when he first wakes up, he's like Googling the Beatles and it's like, oh, the Beatles isn't there. And then he Googles like a bunch of other bands to see if they're still there. And Oasis isn't there, right? And we mentioned it's a this. Joke. Like, yeah, it's a joke. Yeah, it, it's a joke because Oasis is widely regarded to be, you know, a, a Beatles ripoff, right? Or uh, or that they, they owe very much to their predecessors, the Beatles. And so the idea that if the Beatles never existed, the Oasis would never exist, like that is... Um, Definitely a uh, a potent idea. Well, also um, there's it's a reference to the fact that they said we're bigger than the Beatles, which right. was ripping off the Beatles saying we're mm-hmm. bigger than God. Jesus, uh, I think. Jesus, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um. So yeah. So it's there's layers, layers. <laughs> well, Papool writes a big quote. A big part of the movie is that Ellie fell in love with Jack when he played Wonderwall in junior high school. We get several flashbacks to this. So wouldn't you think that once Jack realizes Oasis never exists in this alternate universe, that the first thing he'd do is ask Ellie what song he played for her at that junior high school performance? That is such a good point. I was waiting and waiting for him to ask her since that flashback is so pivotal to their romance and thus of monumental importance to the love story. And if he never asks her, he knows the pre-blackout Ellie was so moved by his Wonderwall rendition and this Ellie had never even heard the song. It feels like it would just be radiohead. It would be something else, yeah. it's the perfect setup. It feels like, like the movie is... was completely set up to have him perform Wonderwall yes. to her to win her back. Otherwise, yeah. there is no point whatsoever in pointing it out. Wow. Um, My mind is blowing right now. <laughs> <laughs> it, is, criticism... it, is, it seems like the exactly it's a Back to the Future-esque setup. Yeah. Like the perfect setup that is completely oh not paid off at all. In, in, yeah. that, in that fantasy movie, he plays Wonderwall at the end and the, like, the Gallagher's come out of nowhere and they save the world just like <laughs> they, they want to. You know, That's the perfect ending. I'm yeah, sure they so, just didn't want to upstage the Beatles by playing Oasis. Yeah. Then why set it up? Why why, yeah, it why up mention it at all? You didn't need to mention it. I'm yep. just kidding. <laughs> yeah. um, Jeff's criticisms of the movie went down many rabbit holes, but this seems like a very basic point in the film and should be the beginning of any negative criticism, end quote. I agree. Yeah. It didn't even occur to me, but bravo. Bravo. I, it seems so obvious in retrospect that, like, how do you not make that a huge plot point? It feels like a... <laughs> a it, he's so right in that it is laboriously established. <laughs> Uh, multiple times multiple we times. see this Repeatedly. flashback, yeah, and yet nothing is made of it. And it, yeah, ripe for something. <laughs> wow, wow. All right, folks. Uh, well, I think we're actually that actually took a little bit longer than I thought. So we, we, maybe we'll save the slash film for court for another day. Uh, but let's start with what we've been watching this week. Uh, Dan Gvozdin, this week you and I both watched movies that are longer than two hours and twenty minutes. <laughs> that are now available on home video. And these are like fairly controversial movies. Uh, and I thought it might be worth uh, mentioning both of them. The, l- 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 let's start with the one I watched, which is called Dragged Across Concrete. This is the new S. Craig Zoller movie uh, that stars Mel Gibson and Vince Vaughn. Uh, Devendra, you, you have not seen this yeah. movie yet, right? You I haven't seen it, it even though I really, uh, I really liked uh, Brawl and Cell Block. So... 
it's the thing I was worried about this movie, right? Because because Mel Gibson, I, I you know, I just still have a huge distaste for the guy at this point. Um, and also there's a lot of chatter about Craig Zoller and, uh, uh, I don't know what he believes, at least what you could tell from his movies, but what did you think, Dave? Well, I think that, uh, S Craig Zoller is a, so let me just say this, this movie is two hours and 38 minutes long. It is, an, it is an ugly, unpleasant, cruel film. Uh, there is a scene in so the the basic premise is basically that uh, Mel Gibson and Vince Vaughn are two cops who are trying to take down some robbers. It's cops and robbers, basically the neo noir cops and robbers, and uh, uh, and I, I will say that I was reminded of what uh, Richard Linklater said when he was talking about Boyhood. This is something I've mentioned a few times on the podcast because. Uh, I've, I, I still think about it, right? When he was making Boyhood, Richard Linklater said that, like, you don't remember going to the graduation. You remember the car ride home from graduation, right? You remember, like, all the subtle moments in between the big moments even more. And uh, and so if you watch Boyhood, they don't show the graduation, but they show the car ride home from the graduation. Um, and it's those little moments, those moments of connection, those moments of humanity that kind of form the fabric of our lives. Uh, and... S. Craig Zoller really took that to the next level with uh, Dragged Across Concrete. <laughs> there is a scene in which Vince Vaughn's character eats a sandwich seemingly in real time. Like, it takes, like, two minutes. Yeah. You're it's just literally watching too, right? him eat From a sandwich. It's a big sandwich. It's not like it's not like a teeny tiny peanut butter sandwich. It's a it's a big boy sandwich. I think it's like Dave, a regular you sandwich. You're just watching him eat a sandwich for two minutes. You don't get to two hours and 38 minutes by... <laughs> Not showing that. Yeah, that's correct. That's correct. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's there's moments of sandwich eating, but there's also, like, people going on extensive monologues about their lives and all, like, this kind of smart dialogue between these characters. Um, and uh, I was, I, like, here is the, the pact I made with myself when I started watching Drag Across Concrete. I'm like, well, I, I, I like Bone Tomahawk, even though I found its racial politics to be a bit objectionable. I kind of didn't like Cell Block, uh, Brawl and Cell Block 99 or whatever it's called. And so I'm like, Dragged Across, across Concrete stars Mel Gibson, who I share your distaste for, Devendra. Uh, stars Vince Vaughn, stars S. Craig, uh, is written and directed by S. Craig Zoller, whose uh, politics are right leaning. And so I'm like, this is all the setup for a movie I would hate and probably not enjoy. So I'm going to turn it on. And if at any point I don't like what's happening, I'm just going to walk away. It's gonna yeah. walk away. Just gonna tr just gonna press pause or press you're, stop. You're at the brothel to learn how to get away from the brothel. You're just That's gonna, David, just gonna we walk. Literally, away. just last week had an entire segment <laughs> in the slash film court about how you don't do that. Yeah. You literally said at length that you don't turn off the movie because there's some chance in the last 14 seconds of the two hour and 38 minutes that some magical thing, some <laughs> flip switch will be flipped and you'll like it all of a sudden. Well, I would say that this is a movie that uh, per the reasons I said predisposed itself to me not liking it, right? It's like I go in wanting to dislike it, right? And despite all that stuff I said, I still found it to be very engrossing. Like I still yeah. watched it all the way to the end I, I enjoyed many parts of it. I admired a lot of the craft of this movie. 
Um, and I think in terms of S. Craig Zeller's, Zeller's politics, I don't. I'm obviously pronouncing his name multiple different ways. Um, but uh, in terms of his politics, like they are uh, a mess as conveyed in his movies. I think that like, insofar yeah. as I can divine his politics, like if you look at Bone Tomahawk, essentially what happens in that movie is <laughs> there are these uh, people who are coded to be like Native Americans, uh-huh. but they're not Native Americans because you encounter a Native American played by Zon McLarnon in that movie who says, hey, like these people, they're barely even human, right? So yeah. like whoever they are, they're not Native American, but they're like, they're savages, right? And uh, And despite how bad the protagonist is, they're always fighting against somebody who's worse than them, right? Same with Cell Block 99 or whatever that movie was. Same <laughs> Bone Tomahawk. It's always like these people who are like kind of problematic, but like they're fighting yeah. against the really evil people, right? Mm-hmm. Same formula mm-hmm. in this movie, which is... It, it feels like it's somebody who... He's clearly somebody who loves like grindhouse cinema, like somebody like like the Death Wish style of movies from back in the day. And it almost felt like, at least with Brawl, that he was sort of elevating it in a way, like uh, beyond, like Tarantino style. So that's what I appreciate about his work. But yeah, this one, there's just a lot more going on. But yeah, Dave, yeah, go on. Yeah, because casting Mel Gibson as, yeah. like, at, at the beginning of the film, there's a scene where it's like, hey, um, uh, I really wish like people recording things like he's a cop and someone records him doing something bad and it's like man I really wish people recording me wouldn't would, wouldn't stop me from doing some good honest work you know which is obviously if you know what happened with Mel Gibson uh very <laughs> he can relate to meta. that story very meta uh, it's very meta and and but here's the thing no matter how problematic Mel Gibson is uh the people he's fighting against are like pure evil like they're like so terrible like you, you the the movie positions you to root for Mel Gibson because of the people he's fighting against, right? And uh and, and so insofar as like his his films have strong politics, they're about like these problematic men who nonetheless we need them on that wall. You know, we want them on that wall, we need them on that wall. And uh you know, that that message may or may not resonate with you, but it's it's kind of a message. It's not a super strong message, but it's kind of a message. Um, and I still managed to enjoy the film. Like I, I admired the movie a lot. Yeah. Despite, I, I think that's yeah. that's what's most. Uh, I I don't know. I feel guilty watching his movies sometimes because he is so good at certain yes. types of things. He's so yeah. good. Yeah. He's so good. Uh, like and tantric misery. Like you're just yes. getting closer and closer <laughs> to turning the TV off. Yeah. But you you never quite get there. And then then like a face gets smashed and you're like, oh man, it's so good. That's what I want to see. Tantric yeah. misery. He's the, he's the sting of feeling terrible. I guess. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I like what yes. uh, uh, Adam Naiman wrote about him at, at theRinger.com. He said Zoller's specialty is cultivating an almost narcotic sense of boredom. And then puncturing it with startling hairpin turns into obscene violence, like jabbing a strung out junkie with a shot of adrenaline. This willingness to alienate viewers in two different ways at once, daring them to tune out, and then punishing them for sticking with it, is one reason that Zeller cuts a controversial figure. And that's right. It's like vast portions of the movie are very boring, and then all of a sudden, this ultra-violence that's super effectively done, (laughs) that that, that, makes you feel gross for even having watched the movie... And then I'm like, oh man, like the fact that he made me feel this way, I, I like admire a filmmaker that can make me feel that, you know, even though he's misusing his abilities, mm-hmm. right? 
I'm, I'm feeling the, the passion through the microphone here, Dave. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, basically, he, he's like the American Lars von Trier over here. Yeah, basically. yeah, that's a, yeah. That's weaponizing not a bad way to cinematic it. misery. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, speaking of cinematic misery, uh, well, anyway, we'll just say that that movie is dragged across <laughs> concrete. All right, and uh, it is a terrible title for a movie, but it does evoke how you will feel watching the movie. So I think. Can that, I just that... say I really liked Bonehawk. Tom, bone bone tomahawk. tomahawk yeah yeah i really liked that movie I, I i enjoyed that i mean it rests a lot on on the charm of uh um kurt russell kurt russell yeah, yeah whom i whom i adore uh but i i really enjoyed that movie i mm-hmm. you know less so cell block but i have not seen this one and and uh your review makes me not really want to yeah, I mean it's, but there, are, Jeff. There's some sequences that are like so effective that I'm like, man, that was really well done sequence. You know, like, yeah. Oh, I just I, I'm so torn. Like, it's one of those movies that I enjoyed and then like hated myself for enjoying. <laughs> if that makes any sense, right? So no, you're dra- right. That does make me want to watch it. <laughs> <laughs> that's drag. It's across. also like he. Uh, just one thing. Like yeah. he gets texture, right? Like a uh, texture of a movie is a hard thing to describe, but. For Brawl, he like uh, he commissioned this original score that clearly evoked like classic like soul and like seventies music too. Like it was even that aspect of it was really well done. Like that's a great soundtrack. So I don't know. I, I like that he commits to certain aspects of these films. Wish he didn't commit to uh, to things like Mel Gibson. Yeah, I mean, I think that like it's it's, it's interesting. I read like this is a piece that so provoked me. I read like six articles about it afterwards i read interviews with him you know to try to understand more what he's trying to do and it's like he he's very he's very much like oh i just i just go where the characters take me you know like it's all character driven like i do what the characters you know would be logical for the characters to do and it's like that doesn't like absolve you necessarily of making a statement with your movie you know like i, I think he wants to be like well we, we hired the right character for the role it's mel gibson and it's like well you're still kind of making a statement with the character like but with that decision you are making a statement that you can't just easily back away from. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's it's problematic as heck, but it, it still is clearly made by a person who is very talented. So, Drag to Cost Concrete. Speaking of extremely long slogs, Dang Vosden, you had a chance to watch Under the Silver Lake, which is streaming right now on home video. Uh, oh, boy. Who moves out in the middle of the night? Nothing strange about it. She wanted to leave. How does that not make sense? I don't understand why she didn't tell me. Maybe she didn't like you. Maybe she knows you're poor and haven't paid your rent. I found some kind of code or like secret message in her apartment. It means stay quiet. Our world is filled with codes, subliminal messages from Silver Lake to the Hollywood Hills. Could any of this be connected to Sarah? I know this girl. There's a message in the music. Really think you're gonna find a hidden message in a pop song? One, two, three. Can't quite see it, but I'm close. Honey, how are you? Mom, I'm fine. Mostly fine. Um. Why do we assume that all of this information is what we're told it is? Maybe there are people out there who are more important than us, more powerful, communicating things in the world that are meant for only them and not for us. Yeah. Oh, you think that's weird? Yeah. What What did you think of this movie? Well, this is the follow up to It Follows, which is a weird thing to say, uh, by David Robert Mitchell, um, who also did the um, the Myth of the American Sleepover. Um, 
And this is a film that's kind of had like a long and tortured history of making it to audience eyes. It was like advertised, I think, what, two years ago? And then went to Cannes where it was purchased and kind of came out for a weekend, I think, in, in L.A. I'm not sure if it made its way to New York. Devinder, did it, did it premiere up there, too? I, I think it was in theaters here. I totally missed it. I'm pretty I sure it was a day and date it. release, if I'm not mistaken. Or it was like, uh, it was very close to, it's a situation where it was very controversial because it's an A24 yeah. film. And it was essentially released straight to DVD or straight to home video, right? Didn't That's, they, didn't they like give it a shot in theaters and then it was like just tanking and then it was like, oh, straight to VOD then. Like I, I think, think it made like $47,000 in the yeah. theater, something really terrible. A couple million, um, couple million yeah. but yeah. Oh, okay. Um, but yeah, uh, this film, I, I saw it day and date when it came out and paid the rental, but now it's, uh, you know, I watched it again recently and, uh, when it came on Amazon prime, uh, for streaming, I think at the beginning of the month and, uh, I, Dave, I know you're not a fan, but, uh, this is my favorite film of the year so far. Um, it's just kind of captured me unlike anything else this year has, and, I wouldn't recommend it for everybody. It's kind of this strange mix of like, I don't know, like Vertigo, Blue Velvet, and maybe something like Donnie Darko. It, mm -hmm. it, it just sticks to this one tone the whole time. And for me, at least, that tone really worked. Um, and, you know, it really captured my imagination. And, uh, you know, it stars Andrew Garfield, Riley Keough, and uh, Tover Grace appears in it as well. And uh, in the film... Andrew Garfield's character, Sam, you know, he meets this girl one night and they kind of hit it off, it seems. But when he returns to her apartment the next morning, she's completely gone. And he starts in this kind of like odyssey to decipher where she's gone based off of random clues that he's finding all over L.A. Um, and in that way, it's almost like Zodiac like in its approach to obsession, but it quickly veers almost even in starts in absurdity. And for me, it's just a brilliant satire of uh, the kind of people that are obsessed with finding meaning and everything, which in a way seems to be attacking someone like me as well. Cause I write these long Easter egg pieces about like hidden things in, and hidden messages in movies. Um, and so I, I, I kind of appreciated that. And there are hidden Spider-Man Easter eggs in this movie um, as well, which is kind of humorous. Um, but I just thought it was a brilliant portrayal of the kind of, uh, Hollywood lifestyle in, in LA in, in terms of just sending up everything about it, how it treats women, um, you know, how, how, uh, enticing the world of Hollywood can be and yet distancing, uh, the idea of power brokers in this kind of me too movement I feel like there's so much in this movie and maybe that like leads to its two hour and 20 minute runtime, but I, I was captured the whole way through. I don't, it's, it would be hard to spoil this because it's so absurd, but if you're willing to go on that ride, I feel like each scene escalates and pays off one after the next. All right. Well, that's under the silver Lake and it's available on home video streaming on Amazon prime. Devinder, I think you also saw this movie, right? what do you think of it? I also saw it. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna rain in your parade, Dan. Uh, I wanted to like this. Like I wanted your response to this movie because I've heard so many things about how uh, how well made it is and how like um, 
just how like weird it is as a film and as somebody who really loved it follows I, i'm totally down to see like what this guy does next uh instead it just feels like a weird lost meandering film that doesn't quite know what it wants to be i think there are some great points like throughout this movie there's some great scenes um and certainly one scene like one big confrontation at the end that i think is fantastic and kind of says a lot about pop culture and our relationship to it and things like that. Um, But the movie overall, like I wanted, I wanted more from the mystery. I wanted more from the characters. Andrew Garfield's character seems to be a psychopath for some reason. And we don't, we don't quite, we don't quite even investigate that. Whereas like I, I could compare it to something like Donnie Darko, except that movie's entirely all about his mental well-being and exploring that in many ways. And that's reflected throughout the film. Whereas this movie just like adds layer upon layer of weirdness uh, to where it just really didn't connect for me. But uh, it was certainly worth watching. Under the Silver like feels a lot more like inherent vice to me than like. Don't don't you even, David Chen. Than any of the other movies that you listed, Dan. And well, well, actually, I was thinking of that because as I was watching this movie, I was thinking like, man, I would like to see a nice breezy L.A. mystery again. Uh, I, I should just really be watching Inherent Vice instead of this movie. And I just kept saying that throughout this because. To me, that movie, it it knows what it wants to be. I think, like, even though that movie is also, like, very loosey-goosey about how it handles things and plot and story mechanics, I think there's a nice, deep underlying core, and all the characters are very true to themselves. Like, I think the characters are very true in that movie, whereas I couldn't get a handle of anybody in this movie because it was just so many things at once. I, I It's funny. I feel very much the opposite. Uh, like, I, I felt like Inherent Vice, while I love that movie, I felt like its plot and and the mechanics of it made no sense and maybe intentionally but mm-hmm. here you, if you buy into the logic of this world it all fits together like especially on the second visit for me like knowing where it goes you can see all the pieces fitting you just kind of have to accept that like it is not set in reality but they give you all the clues you need at least i felt to 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 piece this world together it, it it's riding that line of like it wants to kind of be set in reality and not, but I think uh, like something like Mother, it it very clearly from the beginning tells you it's an allegory or it's not to be totally believed a hundred percent. And I guess it, it's really up to you. At least I feel like this. It's up to you to decide whether or not that's something that you can get on board with or not. All right. Well, that's Under the Silver Lake. It's on home video right now. Dan Gvozdin, what else have you been watching this week? Yeah, I had a really unique experience that I wanted to talk about briefly. Um, you know, the Academy does all these screenings in L.A., you know, uh, you know, films like retrospective ret- retrospectives and things like that. But they had the most unique one I've I've ever seen because of the impossibility of its existence, which is they did. They're doing this technical uh like look back on the Star Wars franchise. And so they did a double billing of Rogue One followed up by a 1977 print of the 19 of star Wars, um, which the impossibility of it is that George Lucas just does not let that be screened much less at the Academy. Uh, like maybe you have a bootleg, you know, version, you know, and you, and you've watching it in your garage or something like that, but you're never going to get this pristine Academy screening of this, because he won't allow it. Um, and for some... You're talking about the one, like, it's specifically without all the additional, like, Jabba CG shit and all that stuff, right? Like, it's the original stuff with all of the special editions, uh, new visual effects. 
the original film like the, yeah exactly no updated effects or anything like that it's just star wars without the a new hope and all of that stuff um it's it's i never thought i would ever see this version presented in the theater i'm i'm too young to have been there in 1977 and so like this was my one shot it was like a five dollar ticket and i thought what the hell you know like let's see if this actually happens because george lucas is known to have shut down screenings like this before um you know even last minute once he gets like the take on it but the academy worked with him and i guess they must have pitched it to him that if they're doing a retrospective on the effects they need to show how effects have aged or like you know advanced in you know the 30 plus years since the film or 40 plus years rather um and it was an incredible experience. Uh, the reason the print existed was because uh, it tore back in the initial run in 1977, right when the Death Star exploded. So they didn't want to, you know, show this film with the big moment with a tear in it. So obviously the Academy doctored it back together, which I thought was funny because we watched Rogue One, which is all about getting the Death Star plans. And then this new film, where we're building up to the, you know, the signature moment of Death Star blowing. And you can see the tape you know, across the film. Um, but it was a really incredible experience. Uh, they had John Dykstra come out and talk about the Dykstra flex, which is the camera that they use to, you know, shoot the miniature effects and things like that. Um, but truly one of the most unique cinema going experiences that in my life and something I never thought I'd see. So if you live in LA, I can't, you know, tell you enough, get on the Academy's mailing list and, and check out some of these really unique experiences they had to offer. All right, cool. Well, uh, so incredible. Yeah, that does sound awesome. And I'm glad you got a chance to experience it. Uh, I mean, it was the kind of thing where everybody there knew the kind of heightened nature of what they were going to see. So like the person announcing it was like, and in this one, Han shoots first. And then someone from the audience shouted, he's the only one that shoots, you know, because Greedo never shot. So it was like everybody knew what they were in for. And that made it even extra special. All right, well, that's Star Wars, and you saw the Academy screening of the 1977 print. Jeff Kanata, you been watching a couple things? I have. Uh, I My wife and I are um, back on that Big Little Lies train, HBO's uh, show, that I think the first season was based on a novel, but I think this season is now off on its own uh <clears throat> Yeah, a trajectory with like help with the author. Too, yeah, help help yeah. from the author of the novel. Yep. Uh, David E. Kelly is the writer creator of this based uh, adapter of it. Uh, first season, I my wife and I both absolutely loved. It is the story of uh, a very wealthy community in Monterey, and specifically a very wealthy private school for for second graders, or at least a class of te- second graders at this school. Uh, the mothers of whom all are all involved in a crime, a violent crime. And there's a mystery in the first season as to what that crime is and how it plays out and what their involvement is and who's responsible. And um, it, it features incredible performances uh, across the board. Uh, and uh, we loved it. And it, it felt like a very tough act to follow, especially now you know, we've seen <laughs> with Game of Thrones uh, being untethered to the source material can often lead to, uh, you know, uh, unsatisfying results. Um, so, I, you know, I, I went into the season a little worried that it might not live up, but heartened by the fact that none other than Meryl Streep was joining the cast. Uh-huh. 
It's like, and, how do you how do you top that cast of the first season? Yeah, just uh, just add a, add a dash of Meryl yeah. Streep. If Perfect. only there's what woman could actually be an improvement here. Hmm. Uh, there's really only one, and it's Meryl <laughs> Streep. Um, so the I feel like the theme for this season is uh, no one ever gets away with anything. You know, you never get away with it, right? There are tendrils and seams and things that stick around and hang on and, and psychologically it's hard to reckon with big acts. You know, you see these movies where someone walks away at the end. It's like, oh, the perfect crime or the perfect plan or whatever. And, uh, you know, in a, in a context of a film, you don't explore the actual ravaged psyche <laughs> of the people involved and really season two so far of Big Little Lies is that. And specifically, uh, the the character who died in the first season, uh, Meryl Streep plays his mother. And her the, the spin that she puts on all these characters by just being this force of chaos, asking questions that no one wants asked, uh, and really refusing to believe the kind of man he was in the first mm -hmm. season is so powerful and really crazy making and uh, riveting to watch. I I'm thoroughly enjoying this season so far. And, uh, I, I, I feel like somehow they managed to top season one. I don't know if it will end as satisfyingly and they've sort of abandoned the conceit of the first season, which was flash forwards, constantly teasing you about things to come. Yeah. yeah. That's a hard oh, those, thing. To those maintain. interview cutaways were so awful in season hey, one. Um, they yeah. were huge. They improvement. Were. So yeah, yeah. Big Little Lies season two, it's on HBO right so now. Good. Uh, just, just quick shout out. Like, by the way, this season is entirely directed by Andrea Arnold. Yes. So I, I love, like, it's nice to have like another great indie filmmaker, uh, handling this whole season. The first season was, uh, John Mark Bellet. So yeah, also good. And check out American honey. If you're digging this season, cause she also did great work there. She did yeah, great work there. Fish tank. Fish tank. Exactly. That's like one of my favorites fish tank so uh and jeff you've been watching one other thing well i wanted to bring this up it's a it's a short thing uh actually less than five minutes long it's a youtube video but i thought it would make for interesting discussion uh, i think dave you tweeted this out as well uh it's a youtube video called the problem solving of filmmaking it was uploaded by pony smasher who is actually the filmmaker david f sandberg who happens to be the director of shazam a movie oh, yeah that I think all of us liked, I certainly did. Um, and this YouTube video in, in its short five minute, less than five minute running time, I think is one of the greatest lessons about how things are made that you can watch. And I highly recommend everyone checking it out. Basically it is describing how the thing, the end product you see is the result of about a billion compromises <laughs> and problems and uh, figuring out how things have to fit together and worrying and different departments and different people all butting heads and all of the things that we come out to a, a movie and say, oh man, what a dumb decision by the director. We're about 400 decisions that led up to that. And it, it is such an illuminating thing. Um, I, I thoroughly loved that insight. It, it takes a very, mundane scene in the movie that really doesn't even spoil the movie at all and breaks down why it was shot the way it was and, and things you wouldn't even notice in the context of the movie. It's a very short little moment, but it's like 
there were so many problems that needed to be solved and so many things that were crazy. But my favorite thing about this short little video on YouTube is that in the context of describing all of these heart-wrenching, brain-breaking issues that he had to deal with in making this movie and making this moment of this movie and in all of the compromises and stresses and things that didn't go the way he wanted them to go. He has this beautiful line and it's a, a throwaway thing. Blink and you miss it. But he says, solving the problems is the fun. And it totally resonated with me. I, you know, I'm working as I am now on, on the dungeon run and trying to invent a story that we improvise week to week. Uh, and I, I'm very, very proud of that show. And I have fallen in love with doing it because it's problem solving. It's, I, I, I love spending 10, 20, 30 minutes just thinking and going, what problem do I need to solve? What, what thing are, uh, have I not figured out yet? What thing has caused me problems? Has the players done that I didn't anticipate? How do I figure it out? And, and, and that is the creative process. And, and I love how pony smasher, uh, David F. Sandberg, uh, describes it here and, and just sort of mentions how difficult, how hard it is, but that's the joy. Like that's actually what you come here for, what, why you in, in, engage in a creative act like this. And I found it very heartening and, and, uh, beautiful too. Yeah. I agree. Um, I would definitely recommend you check out this video, The Problem Solving of Filmmaking, uh, which is on YouTube. We will link to it in the show notes. So if you want to just mm -hmm. go to the show notes and tap on it, you can get to it. And I think the video is really helpful for a lot of people because I think that like it is super easy to be – certainly when I started doing this podcast, you know – um, I would we we would often talk about like oh the director did this like you said Jeff like the director did this or oh the director shouldn't have done this and what you realize is uh, you have no idea whether the director did that or not you know you have no idea whether the director intended to to do that whether somebody else entirely made that decision or whether or if the director beat him or herself up over and over trying everything they could do not to do that. And it yeah. was the only, it was yeah. the least was the, bad decision. The least bad the way they could have solved that problem. Exactly yeah. right, yeah. Um, and every, not only, not only every movie, every scene in every movie is often a result of all those compromises and all those decisions. So so I think that's a great uh, illustration of that. And I would but definitely- it's also Yep. I'm sorry, just not to cut you off, but uh, the the thing that I love about that and what I want to reemphasize is that that sounds so negative and it, and it kind of is in, in, a, in a weird way, but also like he comes away with it saying, that's the fun. Yeah. That's the fun is showing up on the day and going, oh, we can't do it this way or can't do it like, okay, let's figure it out. That's this wonderful creative challenge. And uh, I, I found that positive spin on something that's kind of inherently negative, really inspiring. And it really goes to show that like a good movie is kind of a miracle. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yep. I, yep. I, I always remember what Stephen Tobolowsky said to me about being in uh, a classic movie. Um, like, like how like these to six or 10 of them that he has been in. Yeah. Well, <laughs> he basically says like, in order to be uh, like, have made it into a classic movie, you, you need to, the, the movie needs to be good. You need to have been good in it. 
and people need to have seen it, right? Which is like, <laughs> like for that s- series of circumstances to occur is so extremely rare in someone's life. Um, and yeah. it happened for him in Groundhog Day, you know? So, and, right. and it's like, but he's just like, uh, it's just really, really tough to uh, to have that, all those things happen. Uh, and, you know, that, 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 the, the the amazing coincidences that occur to make a, a good movie good uh, happen all the time. And it's a miracle that the, any uh, movie is even half good. So the, the other anecdote that I always think about, it may be apocryphal. I, I don't know, but it, it is a commonly cited uh, thing where uh, Sir Lawrence Olivier supposedly had this brilliant performance on stage and uh, a friend was in the audience and came backstage to congratulate him on this just thunderous, powerful performance. And as they opened the dressing room door, he was hunched over his, his makeup table crying. And they said, Larry, Larry, why, why are you crying? You were brilliant. And he said, I know, but I don't know why. And, and, And what is your take home from that, Jeff? Well, I, the idea is that that the, as you said, being good is a miracle. No one knows how it happened. It, it, a whole, whole bunch of things have to line up. Yeah. It's a, a lot of uh, magical fairy dust, uh, and uh, even the best of the best, oftentimes it, it is elusive and if, if ethereal as to why uh, why they even are doing a good job. So you just sort of like you know jump into the void and and do your best, and then and then crunch the problems, and that's. I think that's the the sort of um, the craftsmanship of it, the the work a day, <laughs> just job of it. I love the positive spin on this too. Like I, for a living, I teach high school filmmakers, and you know they, they can be very discouraged by making a bad movie. But it's like, no, you have to understand. You know, if you were to make a great movie your first time out, that would be truly the mistake. You know, yeah, <laughs> yeah. you'd ruin everything. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, that's what we've been watching this week. Uh, before we move on into our review of Spider-Man Far From Home, we got to thank all the people who donated to the podcast. Thanks to new subscriber Ragerland for subscribing at the rate of $2 per month. And we had a couple donors this week as well. Joseph Sanchez donated uh, and said, thank you guys for all you do. And Jeff, thank you for the limericks. Also, shout out to Maddie H. for sharing my love of movies and kettle corn <laughs> seasoning. Uh, so that's from Joseph. And also, John... From Decatur, Georgia. Decatur. I Decatur. love Decatur. Decatur, yeah. Georgia. Decatur. Decatur is a, a Decepticon, <laughs> I believe. Yes, that's right. Uh, gave a massive donation, like huge donation. And then all he wrote with the donation were the following words. Thanks for all you do. Jeff's wrong about Avatar. That was Damn. the entire. This is a rough week for Jeff. That was really? the entire uh, description of that of that massive I'm donation. Wrong about it being good and fun to watch. I guess that's that's my position <laughs> is that it is good and fun to watch. We should mention that we were shouted out for our Avatar conversation on the How Did This Get Made podcast this week. Uh, which, if you want to picture what that is, uh, picture a podcast that is much funnier and more successful than the Slash Filmcast. That is how did this get made? Yeah. <laughs> With actual comedians, uh, huge fans of all those people on that yes. show, and uh, uh, just we felt so honored to be mentioned by them. It's, uh, and, and talking you know. about one of the most consequential things of all time, the cultural footprint of Avatar, right? So, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, you, where, where, I think, where did they come down on that? By the way, Dave. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know. You got to ask Jeff Kanata. Well, yeah. all I know is. Them discussing it is <laughs> is cultural relevance. Mm, mm. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, good save. And, nice save, Jeff. Yeah. You're welcome, Avatar. I, I mean, this is how you Troy. should be remembered, Jeff. Is 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 your Avatar position <laughs> on my gravestone? Nothing. Nothing about loving things. Nothing about the dungeon run. Just the whole <laughs> my, Avatar thing. My gravestone will say. <laughs> I see you, and thousands yeah. of people who walk by it will be like, "What does that mean?" <laughs> yeah, they'll also say, "Still waiting for the Avatar sequels." <laughs> they will never come out. <laughs> yeah, indeed. All right. Well, let's move on into our review of Spider-Man: Far From Home. Heads up, Nick Fury's calling you. I don't really want to talk to Nick Answer Fury. The phone. Why? Because if you don't talk to him, then I have to talk to him. I don't want to talk to him. You sent Nick Fury to voicemail? I gotta go. You do not ghost Nick Fury. What up, dorks? What's up? We're just talking about the trip. I'm here in St. Marco Polo's. Oh, I think MJ really likes me. That reminds me when I first fell in love. You're a very difficult person to contact, Spider-Man. This is Mr. Beck. We could have used someone like you on my world. New world? Beck is from Earth, just not ours. The snap to our hole in our dimension. You're saying there's a multiverse? We have a job to do, and you're coming with us. There's gotta be someone else you can use. What about Thor? Off-world. Captain Marvel. Unavailable. But I'm just a friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. Bitch, please, you've been to space. That was from the trailer of Spider-Man Far From Home. And uh, I'm going to read the plot summary from IMDb. Following the events of Avengers Endgame, Spider-Man must step up to take on new threats in a world that has changed forever. Uh, We should point out, before we begin our conversation of Spider-Man Far From Home, we are going to spoil Avengers Endgame. You cannot talk about this movie without spoiling Avengers Endgame. You know what also spoiled Avengers Endgame? The first five (laughs) seconds of the trailer for Spider-Man Far From Home. For Spider-Man Far From Home. Spoiled Avengers Endgame. So, uh, just FYI, we will make a separate spoiler note when we spoil Spider-Man Far From Home. But we will be spoiling Avengers Endgame right up the top. So, all that said, Dank Vostin, you have made an online career of talking about Spider-Man. There is probably, I don't know, five people in the world that know more about Spider-Man than you. I'm guessing conservatively. Uh, And so, no one is better equipped than you. To or few people are better equipped than you to tell us how Spider-Man Far From Home measures up in the corpus of Spider-Man related works. Corpus. All that said, how does it measure up? How, how does it fit into the corpus? <laughs> well, Dave, <laughs> I guess my thoughts could best be summed up in the form of a limerick. Yes! Damn! Challenge! <laughs> the gauntlet is being thrown! Bring, bringing it! Okay, here we go. There once was a boy who wore spiders. He said, I've got to stop the gliders. Now we have a Benless take, and yes, I love Jake, but I'm not sure for what Peter aspires. Oh. <laughs> I like I it. I never um, said it was good. You know, I got to say, that was, um, that was pretty weird, Dan. <laughs> that was pretty weird. <laughs> I like it, but I'm not, I don't, I'm not sure what your take hey, on the movie agree. is. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, there once was a boy who wore a spider. What does that even mean? He like, was on his, his suit. Yeah, his suit has pictures of spiders on him. I buy okay, it. Okay, okay, okay. I right. was in, I was intending to refer back to the original films by saying he had to stop the gliders. Mm-hmm. 
But uh, obviously, oh, oh, like I, like Green Goblin, is that what you're talking? Yes, about? This, yeah. this is no, this looks like a like a spider web over here. Yeah, Man. Yes. I'm sorry, I never I never claimed it was good, but I I just thought it was the best way I could sum up my thoughts because Dave, you've mandated it. It's true. I, I for one appreciate it very much. <laughs> if I had known, I wouldn't have even bothered this week because we hadn't met the quota. Yeah, 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 indeed. All right, so uh, yeah, so Dan, uh, putting that aside, uh, what are your thoughts on the movie? Well, I apologize again, but um, yeah, I mean, maybe it's just as confused as the limerick uh, is like, I I really enjoyed this movie, I think, overall, but at the core of it, I, I have this kind of lingering question about how Spider-Man is being interpreted in this new series, and like, wh- like whether or not I really like have bought into this uh, expression of the character. Um, I think... A lot of these movies, these both these movies, Homecoming and, and Far From Home, have kind of been a tale of like two movies each, where like the first Homecoming really to me was a journey about Peter becoming the Spider-Man that we kind of know and love. And here it seems very much like a weird regression uh, of the character where he's kind of flipped on an opposite path. And I just felt like Peter didn't drive the action quite as much in this film as he did in the previous one. And it allowed me these questions to enter my mind about what I think about this interpretation of the character. I said it was Benless. There's no uncle Ben in this world. And once you start peeling that stuff back, I started asking myself questions about what motivates this character. What are his goals? And is he really the central focus of these movies? And to me, this is a movie that kind of is missing out on a truly active protagonist, and that really hampered my love of it. But I do think it has one of the greatest villains in the MCU, and I, I'm very eager to talk about that once we can talk about that. Yeah, so we should say nothing about the villain until spoilers, I think, is a, is a good way to proceed. Sure. Uh, get Venom even. in this movie. What? <laughs> yeah, the Venom cameo is crazy. No, there's no Venom, but um, Divinger Hardware. Your thoughts? Uh, I I really enjoyed it. I, I thought it was a great refresher coming off of Endgame, which, uh, you know, that movie was just like a big wallop of emotional turmoil for me. Like we described it pretty much like the leftovers uh, in the Marvel Universe. And I really love that movie. But The I'm leftovers, ready... the HBO original show, not like yes. leftover, yeah. like unpleasant. Yes, food yes, yes. Or something. Yep. It, it, you know, it's life after the rapture, basically. Um, this movie feels just like the refresher we kind of need, but also the sort of reckoning of all of the events of Infinity War and Endgame. Like there's an entire world where... Uh, you know, half the population disappeared for five years and people have to live with that. And yeah, it's interesting that this movie kind of reflects on that, but also kind of goes back and, you know, it's it's a Spider-Man movie, of course. And it reminds me of Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 2, where he is kind of searching for his purpose. He is kind of doing the thing where he doesn't he, he just doesn't want to be Spider-Man for a little while. He wants to have a normal life uh, because the stuff is taking a toll. And it's entirely a movie about him, like figuring out who he is as a character and what he wants to be as a hero. And yeah, I enjoyed pretty much all of it. It's funny. Uh, the action's great. Um, love Jake Gyllenhaal in this movie. He is, he is hilarious. We'll definitely talk a lot more about like how he is in this film. Um, and Tom Holland, I think just really 
is cementing himself as like for me the definitive peter parker on screen um it's nice to have a peter parker that's young for once or at least like much younger than uh what Tommy mcguire and andrew garfield um it's also nice that uh you know he yeah he's surrounded by people who actually look like kids and who are pretty young too so it's telling you know the the very high school story of spider-man and i'm here for it i want to see more of that and how can you not love tom holland he's he's so endearing in this movie Jeff Kanata, your thoughts? Well, Dave, <laughs> I guess you could say my thoughts are best summed up in the form of a limerick as well. Oh, wow. Surprise, surprise. Coincidence. <clears throat> sure, Spider-Man always defends the world and does it again, but this movie wins with how fun it begins following Peter and his amazing friends. All right. Yeah, this, that's not bad. I love this movie and I disagree that it is a Spider-Man movie. It is a MCU movie first mm-hmm. and a Peter Parker movie second, distant third, a Spider-Man movie. Mm. And I think that's a really interesting take. It is Marvel saying, okay, if we're going to have this character, we're going to make it about our stuff. And I'm fine with that. We've had, as you said, a corpus of spider movies uh, in the past and plenty of exploration of that stuff on screen. I am so much more, I'm so excited for Peter Parker movies. Like this movie is a straight up Mm -hmm. kids teen comedy for about an hour and a half. Mm. And I am, I loved it. I was having a blast with it. I mean, there's very little spider suit in the first half of this movie, even more maybe. And, uh, and then when Spider-Man does come, as Devinder said, the action is phenomenal and really much, much more interesting in my opinion than homecoming even. Um, it's a really interesting take MJ in this, in this MCU is such an interesting character and one I'm, uh, just adore. There's lots to talk about in spoilers, but I love how this movie is is so confident. It's so f- fine with letting us just hang out with with Peter Parker and th- be into the stuff that Peter Parker is into and the stuff that Peter Parker has always had a problem with in the comics, which is I just want to be a kid and I have all these spider responsibilities that pile up and then people smack me in the face with their superpowers and oh, I have to deal with all that. But I just want to be a kid. And I mm-hmm. love that these movies are doing that. Um, I mean, we've had such an incredible year to 18 months of of Spider-Man stories, you know, <laughs> between the uh, between, uh, you know, into the Spider-Verse and the PlayStation 4 Spider-Man, which I think might really belongs in the conversation as mm-hmm. one of the great Spider-Man stories. Cinematic this movie Spider-Man also stories. feels like it nods to that a little too. A little bit. Yeah. 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 I think it's it is really impressive that in the last twelve months we have gotten three, uh, at least decent Spider-Man stories, if not. Yeah, much I would say excellent. All three are excellent. You know, some yeah. of the best. I, 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 I don't know. Clearly, you didn't come away from this movie liking it as much, but I really, I think. I mean, I can't wait to talk about spoilers because there's lots to discuss. But it, I think this movie does some stuff that's interesting narratively, mm-hmm. and it, it, it really, excuse me, it really has fun. And uh, I love that it's it's able to have fun, especially as Devinder pointed out in the shadow of Endgame, which is such a 
heavy experience that this movie is like, okay, we can still be mourning some of our characters and still have that looming as a major plot point and, and still be having a good time. And clearly Marvel or yeah, Marvel Feige and, and company have decided that Tony Stark is uncle Ben in this universe. You know, that's, that's the stand in for uncle Ben is, is Tony Stark. All right. Well, I'll just say, you know, I, I want to get the spoilers as quickly as possible. That I enjoyed the movie as I was watching it, and it's a movie that j- just because the chemistry between the actors is so good. Obviously, the relationship between um, Jake Gyllenhaal's character and Tom Holland's character is great. Jake Gyllenhaal is amazing in this movie. Single-handedly, like increases this movie by like half a letter grade for me. Almost in my book, yeah. just because Agreed. he he yeah. attacks that role with so much gusto. I just love what he's doing in this movie. Um, but I have the same problems that Dan Gavosson has, which is that uh, I, I just think that Spider-Man's arc is a bit of a mess after these uh, last four movies that he's been in. And uh, I also think that uh, the movie just, you know, the action didn't work for me quite as well as it did for you, Jeff. One of the great things that uh, the... Uh, Russo brothers brought to the MCU was this uh, this hand to hand combat that really helped to ground these movies in a very uh, mm-hmm. uh, interesting way because th- these movies are about gods you know fighting with their special powers but the fact that you have like Thor and Iron Man and Thanos like going hand to hand really helps to like make it feel like. Um, maybe people actually did get into these suits and fight each other, you know? And yeah. that probably didn't actually happen in real life, but uh, but it, th- there was a visceral nature to it that I really appreciated, uh, and that is almost completely absent from this movie. I, there's just very little hand-to-hand combat, and that matters just because it's super heavily CG in a way that felt very weightless to me and inconsequential. And without um, getting into spoilers, I think that that is especially essential for this movie. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and then um, I did a, a video review with Ben Pearson from SlashFilm.com, which you can find at uh, my YouTube channel. And uh, uh, during that review, Ben pointed out that, like, basically these, you know, the first Spider-Man Homecoming, for those who don't recall, was a compromise between Marvel Studios and Sony. Right, mm-hmm. they basically said like, "Hey, we're g- Sony. You own the rights to Spider-Man. You own the rights to make movies, but you're pretty bad at it." Yeah. So and S- Sony was the dog <laughs> sitting in the house on fire, and it was like, "Okay, maybe I need some help. Maybe this is not fine." Yeah. So, so yeah. maybe just let Marvel make the movie, and maybe Sony can help with like certain aspects of marketing. Um, and actually, uh, Richard Rushfield in his newsletter, The Angler, today revealed that according to that deal. If Spider-Man Far From Home did not gross over $1 billion worldwide, uh, the rights were going to revert back to Sony. Uh, now, according to the current trajectory, that is not going to happen. So Marvel will get to make the third film if they so choose. Um, so that is a good thing. But point being, when they first made Spider-Man Homecoming, uh, this was like a completely new situation. Obviously, he had appeared in Civil War, but uh, they didn't know how well this character would do in the MCU and so they kind of hedged their bets a little bit by putting Tony Stark into the movie. I think they paid him like $5 million to be in like 10 minutes of that movie or whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I think it really worked. You know, it really, uh, I, I like that movie. But increasingly, it feels like these Spider-Man movies are having a very difficult time escaping from the shadow of Tony Stark 
and I feel like they are worse off because of it. So um, this is a movie that I thought was very enjoyable while I was watching it in the theater and thinking back on it, I kind of grapple with the same questions as Dan of like, what what is what is the arc of this character and like what really is the impact this character is going to leave in the broader you know, corpus of works of Spider-Man. And I- I'm still unsure of that. So, uh, mixed review from me, but I'm glad everyone overall enjoyed the movie, including myself. And looking forward to talking about spoilers for Spider-Man Far From Home, starting right now. Now you're looking for the secret. You're going to see this coming. No. But you won't find it because, of course... You're not going to see this coming. You're not really looking. I have been puzzling over how it works. You don't really want to work it out. Who's in the box? I have been dying to tell you. I want to tell you my secret now. You want to be fooled. So before we continue, we should point out that Dank Vossen has written a uh, an excellent uh, rundown of all the Easter eggs in Spider-Man Far From Home over at The Hollywood Reporter. Uh, how many Easter eggs you find, Dan? Like 50 or something like that, right? It's at 52 right now, but many of them are layered within Easter eggs. So, I mean, and I, I made sure my editor titled it Easter eggs and references, mm. lest people like fight me on like the definition of that. <laughs> I, I uh, would be one of the people that would fight you for sure. Um, but tell me what, uh, is your favorite or your couple favorite Easter eggs from this list? Well, because we're in spoilers, one of my favorite Easter eggs is is it's I think it's a dumb Easter egg, but the situation that it's in is kind of remarkable. Um, so after the big fight with all the elementals at the end of the movie, uh, there is like an overturned car on the bridge before uh, Pete and MJ share their first kiss. We're deep in spoilers here. Yeah. Um, and on the license plate of that car, it says uh, TASM143. And that is referring to the issue of Amazing Spider-Man number 143. Uh, Pretty obvious stuff. But the crazy (laughs) thing about this Easter egg is that uh, in that issue of Amazing Spider-Man, Spider-Man goes to Paris. uh, And before leaving, he kisses MJ for the first time. And then in Paris fights uh, this villain called the Cyclone, which is clearly what the final villain in this movie was inspired by and so like that both of those scenes happen in this movie back to back the fight against the cyclone and the kiss with mj i can't imagine that the writers like read that comic and 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 wrote it accordingly like they based their whole third act around you know the payoff of one comic from the 1970s like that just doesn't make sense to me. So somewhere there was someone whose job it was to add these Easter eggs into the movie and change that license plate, uh, who just had this sudden Eureka moment that, Oh my gosh, this issue covers both of those things. Um, <laughs> so anyway, I, I just imagined this guy in this room somewhere. Well, like, wh- why do you think that's more brilliant. likely than the writers being big Spider-Man fans and knowing about that? Like, why is it more likely that, there's a guy sitting there who's yeah, like that inserting... seems like much much rarer. Like yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, I, I would assume that they poured over the history of Spider-Man comics yeah, for ideas. Yeah. <laughs> well, because th- this villain has never reappeared really ever again. It's such a like trivial like fight to to like go. Oh, yeah. we need to have this guy in the movie. You know, also this movie. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's a trivial fight. Is it a trivial fight in the comic too? Uh, yeah, I guess so. I mean, most fi- yeah, superhero villain fights in comics are trivial, but I, I don't know. <laughs> I, 
like somewhere there was a eureka moment where they were like we could do both these things at the same time and that license plate is kind of an interesting representation of that in some way. Well, we will link to your article in the show notes. It's a great article, uh, and I'm very impressed with, the, like, as you mentioned in the article, virtually every uh, license plate in the movie is a reference to a Spider-Man comic, uh, which yeah. is, I'm impressed that A, they did that, but B, that you somehow, you and other people on the internet have somehow figured that out. Yeah, how, um, what, is the, what is the process of writing an article like this? Yeah, are you, are you, <laughs> you sitting there the writing down the license plates? Like, what, what's, yeah, are you what's just going on? to the movie a bunch of times and looking in the corners? How does yeah. it work? Yeah. Well, this one was unique. Um, like, Into the Spider-Verse I went, and I went like a mo- over a month ahead of time uh, with the idea that I would do this. So I just brought a pad of paper with me and just in the dark wrote out everything that I saw. And then, you know, after the movie... I went, you know, to the Shake Shack and just went through my list and said, "Was well, that a real thing or not?" And then I actually emailed people at Sony and said, "Hey, do you mind if I go and see it again? You know, I wanted to see the movie again because I loved it so much, and I wanted to check one or two things." And then, you know, I double checked it. This one, I didn't get to see it as early. I saw it like five days before it was released, so I saw it once. Did the same thing and brought a friend of mine who knows a little bit about Spider-Man with me. Um, and we kind of had a beer and discussed what we had seen and, you know, thought, well, this, does this sound right? And then, uh, yeah, I wrote it all up. It was like 20 pages in a document and, and published it. And the night that the movie released, I went back and saw it again and emailed my editor furiously like, Hey, there's like three things I have to change. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, but, but are you like looking at the license? Pl- are you writing down every license plate number, every sign, you know, like I, I remember, I actually remember this exact scene. The license plate is like up there in your face. Like it, yeah. it is kind of hard to ignore. Yeah, no, but, but, there, but these, there's like many, there's like many ways. license plates throughout the film. I know. I know. But in that particular shot yeah, yeah, and yeah. like scene, like it is, it is. And once you see Tasm, basically in my brain instantly went to the amazing Spider-Man. So like once you see those characters, you're like, Oh, that's Hasm one, four, three. Yeah. Yeah. But a lot of these Easter eggs are like just a few frames. Yeah. It's it's remarkable. It's just, uh, I don't know, quick recall, but like, yeah, the license plates, like they, they are there quick. Like the Sandman one at the beginning of the movie is barely visible, but that was also in the trailer. So I knew that like it was there. Um, although it is interesting because they put different Easter eggs in the trailer, based on how the trailer was edited um, than the movie. So they're not only creating fake scenes, they're creating fake Easter eggs for the trailer as well. Um, But some of them are like fairly, you know, if you're a Spider-Man fan, you're going to see it immediately. Like the back of Aunt May's car says AMF 1562, which is Amazing Fantasy 15 from 1962, the first issue with Spider-Man in it. Yeah, there's like uh, no way in hell I would ever have gotten that, but that's why I'm glad we have people like you, Dag Vosden. We need you on that wall. So check out this hey, article about 50 Spider-Man Easter eggs and references at Hollywood Reporter. We'll link to it in the show notes. Um, can I say did, one more really quick that's really monumental for the future of the series? Yeah. So there's a Fantastic Four uh, Easter egg in this movie. Um, which I don't know when it was added in, but right at the end of the movie, when Spider-Man is swinging to pick up MJ, there's a sign on the building that says, we can't wait to show you what comes next. And then it has numbers one, two, three, and then a question mark. And each number is associated with the color of a member of the Fantastic Four. So I don't know when that was So when you say the sign, just to be clear, to be clear of what you're saying, okay? (laughs) This is a construction sign 
in mm-hmm. New York City that's like, we can't wait to show you this night. So it's like, if you've ever walked past a building under construction, they'll have like a sign but like of like a drawing of the final building. And it's like, we can't wait to show you what's next. That is what you are referring to in the final scene of Spider-Man Far From Home, right? Correct. But it's also reinforced that it's on 41st Street and right. uh, mm-hmm. Park Avenue. And the Baxter building where the Fantastic Four is, is on Madison Avenue and 42nd Street, just a block away. So... Uh, you know, it, yeah. it's it's all there. Who, who is the, who is the uh, uh, I was going to say, who is the Fantastic Four character that is not referenced in the one, two, three? The Invisible Woman, which is why which it's a question be, mark. Would be gone. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. wow. Well, really? nice. bravo, Dan. Bravo. Bravo. <laughs> yeah. 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 Jeff, you're, you're going to say something, right, Jeff? Yeah, I have a question for you, Dave. Uh, were you were you familiar with the character of Mysterio from the comic books? So I vaguely knew that he is a bad guy. Um, right. But I didn't know more than that. A master of illusions. Yeah. You, yeah. You didn't know any about the, the illusory stuff. You didn't yeah. know about him being a special effects artist on any of that stuff. So I'll just say that when the Mysterio reveal, like when it's revealed that he's a bad guy, uh, and like, and then Jake Gyllenhaal gives that whole speech in front of everyone, and they so cut well back bad. to Iron Man one. I'm yeah. freaking like losing my mind over how cool oh, yeah. this is. Right? That, like, that is that is like butter for David. Trump. Yeah, it's just that like is this like, is freaking amazing that they yeah. do yeah. this. Right? So we, cool, right? Can we yeah. talk a bit more about that moment structurally? Because that's the moment where the movie came to life for me. Mm-hmm. Up until that point, the movie is kind of gaslighting Peter and the audience. But my ma- biggest problem with this movie is that the thing they're gaslighting with us with is really stupid. And I think is meant to be like a satire of Marvel villains. Oh yeah, and and yeah. Marvel plot lines. But if you're like someone who knows M- Mysterio is a villain, or even just someone who like can read whether or not a movie is fully invested in something, like it seems very obvious that the movie's not invested in this. And so for the first hour of the movie, you're just waiting for like something to turn. And I had a really hard time buying into the stakes of this movie until that moment. Mm-hmm. Well, it's an interesting thing because uh, I. I I was right there with you in waiting for Mysterio to be Mysterio, and, but I kind of loved it. I kind of loved that the movie was doing this, and I don't think – I think it's an interesting question to say, do the filmmakers think they're fooling anybody? Which is why I asked Dave, like, what did you know about this character? Were you sitting around waiting for him to reveal the illusion? Uh, because I – was and as you continue with this movie you go yeah you know there's it's clearly stuff isn't right how much of this is an illusion right you know uh but i wonder if that experience for someone that maybe didn't have that expectation based on the character might be i th- so my wife saw the movie separately than me um for logistical reasons and uh she all i mean it, it's i think it is widely known that mysterio is a bad guy like yeah. she, even she knew it, and she's she... also like, have you have you seen a movie before? You know, like big star <laughs> coming in, like, uh, yeah. What do you expect? Well, I think I think you could. I mean, if you really didn't know anything, you could think that Jake Gyllenhaal was being set up as a big new superhero sure, sure. hero. But I don't even think they give him that treatment, though. Like he's yeah. just kind of like at the periphery. Like if this is going to be a big new hero in the Marvel universe, like. Give me like that treatment of the character. Mm. Does it make sense? I see. Yeah. Well, I, I my biggest problem with all of it gets, I guess, fixed or at least addressed in the 
you know, the end end credits stinger. Oh, I feel the we, same way about this. We re, yeah, we realized I was like, there's yeah. no way Nick Fury yeah. would be this stupid. It's really it's really convenient that he's and that it, dumb. It, it yeah. is. It feels like someone was was like, uh, guys, we really need to make Nick Fury not this dumb. Uh, and then they threw that in, but I kind of love it for that. I, I don't know the, 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 the magic trick of it, the, uh, pulling out the rabbit at the last second and going, Oh, guess what? Nick Fury wasn't even there. Uh, I, I, I dig that just because I like being fooled, but I can understand how that might be a little, feel a little contrived and easy. Yeah. Well, what is you're really, watching it? Yeah. It's rough. What, what I is think really interesting still... about the Nick Fury reveal is that, no one seems to know for sure how far back it has been happening. And there's been many theories online. John Watts, the director, has said that it's since the end of Endgame. But, uh, Dan, you know, you and I spoke and I showed you this video where Ryan Arry from Screen Crush convincingly argues that it has been for many, many movies that Nick Fury has not been uh, around. Um, I hope that's true because it was really convincing <laughs> since 1997 or whatever. <laughs> whenever the, he like t- he gets his eye cut and he's like, I'm "Peace, I'm piecing out of here, man." Well, well, the, the the thing that really blew my mind, and you you got to watch the Screen Crush video about this. We'll link to it in the show notes. But it basically it it argues it because if you recall in Captain Marvel, Nick Fury they introduce themselves like, "Hey, tell me something that like only you would know about yourself," right? And he says, "I don't like." Uh, sandwiches cut diagonally, right? Like, I can't eat sandwiches cut diagonally. But in Captain America Civil War, there is a scene in a kitchen where he eats a sandwich diagonally. Yeah, and that it's can't like, be a coincidence, right? That can't be. It can't be. It can't be. Um, They're too but, specific. <laughs> if it's not a coincidence, I feel like they are spending way too much time on elements like this and like way too little time on some of the really bigger things. Like for example, in this movie where at the beginning of the movie, Peter just loves MJ out of nowhere after doing no setup of that in the last movie and then hanging all of his emotional stakes on his romance with this person. We've never seen in that context. It was a very jarring experience to go back and rewatch Spider-Man homecoming after this, because he spends 99% of that movie trying to hook up with that other uh, girl in that Mm -hmm. movie. Uh, And then, you know, I guess it just turned on a dime in this movie, which, you know, fair enough. You've you've never been a high school kid. Fair fair enough. It's high school. It's also also the story of Peter Parker too, right? Like Mary Jane is not his, his first. Yeah. Yeah, You know, fair fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. But I think, I think that, uh, you know, that's ultimately love Mysterio, love the meta commentary on what it means to like make a movie uh, or to, to create an illusion. You know, Mysterio's whole plot is very much like, it, it is a commentary on like Marvel movies. Right? It's like, hey, mm-hmm. we, we have this big light show and we try to convince you that what's fake is real. Um, and to have him yeah. walking also, around. Also it- twisting into like a fake news commentary yes. too. Like it is, it is, that, that's what I think is brilliant about this movie. Because I think it does kind of reflect on a lot of things happening now. It does in a smart and not too cloying way. Like honestly, Mysterio feels like the character, like Jake Gyllenhaal's character from Nightcrawler who just like went insane and got like got these powers and became a special effects whiz. Like it it is that character and he's channeling the same sort of like insane energy. And for me, that's how I was reading the film. It kind of worked like that. I, I think I I really picked up on the commentary about America today or the world today on a, on a grander stage. But I, it really seems to me that the next movie Mm -hmm. is going to really take that on. If if, he won won in this movie, guys, let's let's be clear. 
Yeah. And it, it is, I mean, it is fake news writ large at the end of this, uh, the first stinger of this movie. And the fact that we have Jay Jonah back and, uh, Oh man, you know, like that, that did your, did your theaters yeah. uh, uh, applaud? My audience had a big moment. Yeah. Yeah. Talk about like, well, there's really only one human on the planet that can play this part. <laughs> so let's just cast him again. Let's do it again. And also doing the like podcaster type thing from, yeah, from the game. Straight from the game. Yeah. 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 It's brilliant. It's wonderful. But it really feels like if that's the hook for where Spider-Man is going in his next movie, it's going to be directly about mm-hmm. talk radio and who do you believe and what's the truth, which I think is bold and really admirable that they might actually talk about that directly i'm very curious to see where they go with this particular twist because the way they have it angled is that you know jonah has outed both peter and his role as spider-man where they could have just had him say you know spider-man was the one behind you know the execution order which would have like reset status quo for spider-man which is like the whole public thinks he's a menace and jonah is the you know mouthpiece against that but like what happens when a 16 year old kid has to take on the whole world's law enforcement? Uh, that's very interesting to me. Yeah. yeah. I, I it's also, th- it's a bit of a twist on the end of Iron Man one too. Like it kind of brings things full circle, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because at the end of Iron Man one, he purposely admitted he's Iron Man in yeah. this one. He, <laughs> his identity is revealed to the world against his will. Right. Um, so there is this kind of echo of Iron Man one's ending there for sure. I do think that this is going to be a huge world altering event for spider-man like the that the spider-man of the next movie will fundamentally be in a different place and have a different stature than the spider-man of this movie and that's really interesting and exciting also uh, we get another fundamentally world-altering notion for the entire mcu which is there's a whole half of the population is five years displaced well yeah in in their but like the idea that they didn't age during that thing is a new bit of information. But I, I feel like that was the case. Like, or at least I don't know if the movies explicitly said that, but around Endgame, I think a lot of the conversation was like, oh, they're just back and these people are the same age. And like, there were, there was commentary around like what this would mean for high school kids. And I love that this movie directly, like it starts there. It starts exploring that. I, I mean, I think you, are, you two are being extremely charitable towards the film. I think that it, it, it laughs off this uh, world-altering event, and that's fine, you know. But just but that, I'm but not going to. That's gonna... the new status quo for every MCU movie going forward: is the blip is canon. Yeah, sure, yeah. but like the, in reality, the blip would cause so many more problems than what's depicted in the film. This, and instead, this, it's this just like, breezy... oh, hey, this is something we can laugh about. Ha ha ha. Yeah, and that's fine. That's fine if that's the approach you want to yeah, take. Yeah, this but is don't... a breezy, fun high school, like almost like a comedy. Yeah, like, that, this that, is agreed. Agreed completely. But then, th- but yeah. then you cannot give the film credit for like handling this. Uh, huge change. With, it, like, I'm not giving like, no. I'm 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 saying it's bringing up something that is going yes. to be, have yeah. a reckoning in future movies. Like I this, I, this is, I will be surprised. The tapestry of the of the entire MCU. I, I will be shocked if this is dealt with in any more with any more gravitas than it was in this film. Let's record. Like, this I, I I think yeah. this this is the way the movies like this is the MCU's way of dealing with the blip. Is my guess because I think the implications are too large and too grave. Um, for these movies to actually address it in a meaningful way. I, so I mean, again, like you're you're taking the pessimistic view. We're just saying, yeah. like, hey, it's interesting. Like, we don't know. We don't know, Dave. So at least just like <laughs> accept like our our potential optimism here. But also, <laughs> the whole idea of the blip is like it, it, writing movies is hard. 
you know, when you have this easy font of uh, storytelling material, like you could do so much with this. So I, I'd imagine they would at least they they wouldn't leave that untapped. I, I have I no they... I have no issues with how they handle the blip. My issue is with how you guys characterized how they handled the blip. So I'm fine I'm with not, how the movie depicted I it. Wasn't, it's cool. I wasn't talking about how they handled the blip. I'm talking about the fact that they make the blip a thing that is canon in this larger universe of movies that 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 is a thing that's that is going to exist for the all the rest of the movies and i i can see what you're saying about maybe it not having gravitas but it's not going to be unmentioned going forward yeah i mean that's fair enough that's fair enough damn we're gonna say something I was going to say, I suspect that it might not be mentioned going forward. Um, you know, I feel like in the comics, the blip never really was mentioned. But it, just this conversation about, like, the gravity of it is really interesting. And I, I enjoyed, Dave, your conversation with Brian Rowan about this a few months back in your Endgame coverage. But um, the thing about comics that I think is so wonderful is that they can handle seriousness and ridiculousness Um you know, very easily together. The the drawn page uh, allows for realistic renderings that are also like cartoony in a way that allows you to get away with this stuff. And I feel like the MCU is kind of trying to figure out where it lands in that. Can it be cartoony while also having serious gravity? And to me, this is like the biggest example of that is like, can this medium operate the same way as comics without undercutting like the reality that they're really going for. Right. I think that's mm -hmm. really well put, uh, Dan. Let me present to you, Jeff, I know you're going to have problems with the next thing I'm going to say. So let's just, let's just do, do this right now. Okay. Which is, <laughs> I think, you know, my big challenge with these movies is, is that they make a bit of a mess of Peter Parker's arc, right? In, um, put aside civil war. Let's just say, Hey, that was a, a, freak event in Peter Parker's life. You start with Homecoming, and he spends most of that movie trying to become an Avenger. And then at the end, he's offered it, and he's like, no, I, I actually don't need this. You know, I, I, I'd rather be the friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. Then in Avengers Infinity War, Spider-Man appears again, and he's like, well, you can't be the neighborhood Spider-Man if there's no neighborhood. He's, uh, he's snapped away, and then comes back and fights in the big you know, uh, battle at the end of Endgame. And then in this movie, again, he has gone back to a situation where he's like, actually, this thing that I've really wanted for many movies, and or this thing that I really wanted for Spider-Man Homecoming, then didn't want at the end of that movie, then did want again during Infinity War, and now don't want again. I need to regain It's almost that like his mentor died, yeah. and it changed how he thinks about things. It's almost like, yeah, there's a life-altering event, and uh, his perspective on the world is a little different, Dave. Like, this, yeah. Uh, it, it is almost like that, but it's not. Almost, no, almost like the movie is reckoning <laughs> with the storytelling of the previous films within this franchise. Like, I don't, I don't see the problem because it, to me, it's an organic approach to this. Like he, he has been through a lot. He's been to space. He, he's fought like the, the, the creature that destroyed the universe and he's, the person he looked up to most in the world has died. He just a bit of normalcy to me makes sense for a high school. He literally goes through this whole movie going, I yeah. just want a break. I yeah. just want a vacation. Just a vacation. All I want is a vacation. He's like, I'm not not gonna be Spider-Man. I just want to go on this vacation. That's the entire premise of this movie. Is like, I just want this trip to be okay. I don't want to bring my suit to Europe. That's all. He doesn't say I don't want to be Spider-Man. I don't yeah. want to be an he's Avenger. He's not throwing it in the trash like like Spider-Man Two at right. this point. Like he's just like, oh, let's like, take a I chill. Just, I literally need a vacation because the shit got weird. 
You know? It's interesting because he's like, he's unable to like accept being the hero that they want him to be, but he's also like unable to say no mm-hmm. to it. So like, it's not a really active choice by his. It's just that kind of like guilt and responsibility thing. That's pure twist, twist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, of course. It's, twisted in a, it's, it's handled in a different way. And yeah. I, I actually think that that's really interesting. M- my problem with it is that uh, I don't, I feel like it's like surface deep, you know, like the death of Iron Man. It's a big moment for him, but he had nothing to do with the death of Iron Man. So if he wants to just wash his hands of being Spider-Man, like he does at the beginning of this movie, and maybe not forever, but, you know, on a vacation, he certainly can go do that. And for me, and this is where I'm wrestling with it, because, you know, I I don't want to be a guy that like strictly believes in a classical version of the character, but I just didn't feel there was no moment in this movie where I was like, yeah, here comes Spider-Man because he's got to, you know, like this is him like making up for some guilt that he has. It more felt like other people were like, yeah, you should do it. And he's like, okay, I guess so. Uh, It just, it didn't have that, uh, that pull of, you know, I know Dave and I, we mm-hmm. talked about Into the Spider-Verse and the moment where Miles right. becomes becomes a hero. And you said that wasn't enough for you. But, like, in that movie, like, Miles has to live up to the specter of a dying Peter who, like, put this weight on him. And so it's not just his desire to, like, do good. He feels this guilted weight that, like, has to propel him into action and I, like, I don't think any moment in this movie. I mean, it's a, it's a long walk to ask for something to measure up to the "What's Up, Danger" sequence from Into the Spider Verse. But I just, there was no moment where I was like, "Here we go, Spider Man mm-hmm. is going to be the thing." And they try with the Peter Tingle thing, but that's not even fully fleshed out here enough to make that moment that powerful. Uh, let me just say this, Jeff, uh, that I, I, you know, whether or not I agree with you on how this movie frames Peter's journey and how plausible it is. Uh, for, for me, that journey just wasn't super compelling. But I will say one thing I really appreciated about it is that moment at the end when Happy is talking about uh, t- uh, Tony... Um, <laughs> Stark? Stark, yeah. I was like, why did I temporarily forget his last name? Tony Stark. Where uh, he's like, Tony Stark, Like that guy was a mess. You know, yeah. constantly second-guessed himself and like was frequently wrong or whatever and it's i really like that because it's this idea that like the heroes that we look up to uh we we create versions of heroes in our mind right that are like unimpeachable and in fact like they're everyone's just human they all everyone's trying to deal with their own challenges and i like that that was a huge part of spider-man's journey in this movie right yeah Um, i mean he builds his own suit you know to the to the tune of iron man so yeah that's all in that moment he becomes tony like this is all a growth experience we haven't even talked about edith which is terrifying (laughs) by the way to give a high school student the ability to just like send killer drones to (laughs) to literally anywhere on earth this is this is the dark side of the tech from uh even from the dark knight basically but uh amped up all the way and now it's for high school pranks uh that's a whole other episode of the The show best uh best acronym ever though (laughs) yeah (laughs) even dead i'm the hero that's amazing that's amazing it's very good yeah um you you didn't find that the acdc like joke while funny undercut that moment a bit like he just finished telling him 
you know, don't be Iron Man, be Spider-Man. And meanwhile, I'm going to play Iron Man's theme under like what, <laughs> what you're doing. Like, I, I feel like that's a nitpick that certainly, I, I don't know. I did not have that nitpick, but certainly if we, we spend our time like diving into Spider-Man forever, like that's yeah. Yeah. It, it, I think super fans could easily be annoyed by that. For sure. I'm just hoping, I'm just hoping that these movies can kind of like, it's, it's interesting. This is the second Spider-Man movie whose villain is a person that Tony Stark pissed off. And I, yes. I just kind of am hoping that the, these movies can explore new, new non-Tony Stark territory next time. Um, well, I feel like that's the setup with Jay Jonah. Um, but mm-hmm. uh, I, like I said, these are MCU movies first. And Spider-Man movies, I think, a distant third. And and I think that's an interesting place to be with this stuff, uh, personally. But, you know, that's because I'm down for the whole MCU. And I'm, I just yeah, love, yeah. The, love the tapestry that they're weaving. And honestly, I'd, I'd love to see something fresh and completely different, too. Like, Spider-Man on the run. The next movie is like the John Wick 3 of this of this set yeah, of Spider-Man that would be cool. So that'll be, that'll be kind of fun. Quick shout out, by the way, to uh, to Martin Starr and J.B. Smoove in this movie, who I think did a great job, uh, especially Martin Starr, of playing the like uh, harried uh, school teacher trying to keep everyone safe during the worst field trip ever. Worst field <laughs> yeah. trip. A couple of uh, other things to shout, shout out. out. Zendaya. Uh, yeah, I was going to say Zendaya is great so as good. MJ. Uh, playing like kind of a non-conventional... Uh, so romantic lead, right? Like mm-hmm. very like Daria esque in her sullenness. Yep. Yeah, um, I like that. And uh, can I just say one thing that I absolutely adore in this yeah. movie? Hit it. Uh, it, it, it. The fact that more than once we have Spider Man reaching up, grabbing a mask, and pulling it off <laughs> <laughs> instead yeah. of it magically disapparating in a bunch of nanotech bullshit. Yeah. Sure. Even, I, but, but but Jeff, by the way, I, most of the time he's wearing the suit in this movie is it's usually CG because they I don't it's care. easier for them to do that. I yeah. don't care. I don't want him. I don't want it to. Uh, that to me is Spider-Man. That moment of pulling yeah. that mask off and the hair flopping out of it is Spider-Man to me. And mm-hmm. I hate, hate the nano bullshit materializing. Does the mask. Jeff Canato hate nanotech? <laughs> I do. We, I don't know. If it, if if really its only application is to materialize clothes around my face, then yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Any other closing thoughts before we wrap things up, gents? Um, I'm I'm glad for the spirited conversation as always. Uh, you know, honestly, I, I haven't said much negative about this movie, but I do think the most contrived thing about this movie is that it takes place in Europe. <laughs> like it feels to me like. That is so shoehorned in this movie, this European <laughs> vacation. Uh, and it feels like the filmmakers are like, hey, why not? Let's go. Um, How refreshing was it to just be in Manhattan at the end? Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. Uh, swinging it was fun- through Manhattan, too, is also great. Like, it we, was we funny that the that. movie did a reversal of the swinging scene, right? Where, like, MJ mm-hmm. is terrified and does not find it at all enchanting. Right. Um, I thought that was, you know, I don't, th- I don't think I've seen that before. So, um, yeah. I just want to say, like, I still really like the movie, but I, I do think, like, I'm hoping that the third movie is like what Jeff said, where it allows him to really become Spider-Man. It'll be the first one set in Manhattan of, you know, of these two movies. So, like, maybe that's it. They were waiting for the stage to open up for this mm-hmm. character to really become, like, who we expect him to be. Definitely. He better be working at Joe's Pizza in the next movie. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that's going to wrap us up for today. That's our conversation about Spider-Man Far From Home. 
and you've been listening to the Slash Filmcast. Find more episodes of this podcast at slashfilmcast.com. Email us at slashfilmcast at gmail.com. Our theme song comes from adamwarrock.com. Our spoiler bumper comes from filmmaker Kyle Hillinger. This episode was produced by Beatty Zhang. Stay tuned to hear what we'll be discussing next week. In the meantime, Dan Gvozdin, where can we find more of your work on the internet? Yeah, if you like Spider-Man, even the, in remote sort of way, come check out my <laughs> podcast, The Amazing Spider Talk, where we're going through the history of the character as a transmedia property. So it's really kind of a discovery of how the, uh, uh, a character can be created and become an icon. And we have all these interviews with guests who've worked on the character over the years. And it's meant to be for people who know nothing about Spider-Man to learn a lot more about it. So if you're interested in that, check out Amazing Spider Talk, my podcast, and follow me on Twitter at, at SupSpiderTalk. How about you, Devendra? I am at Devendra on Twitter, and you can follow my tech work at Engadget.com. I'm also doing a tech podcast at NoMoreTech.net. That's no with a K, and season two will be starting soon. How about you, Jeff Kanata? I'm Jeff Kanata on uh, Twitter. Uh, that's with two N's and one T. And hey, if you're listening to this, you you... I'm guessing you like storytelling and you like big, cool, fun stories. If you wanted to do me the best solid, it would be to check out my new show, The Dungeon Run. I know you may look at it. You can you can uh, Google it or you can search on YouTube and uh, for The Dungeon Run. The episodes will come up. They may seem a little intim- intimidating because they're three hours plus long. I promise you, you're going to get some laughs. You're going to fall in love with these characters. You're going to have a great time. You can listen to it as an audio podcast. It's available as an audio podcast. We also record live on Wednesday nights, and you can impact the story yourself by showing up in the chat on caffeine.tv slash the dungeon run Wednesday nights at 6 p.m. Pacific. But this, as I said earlier in the show, is the thing I think I'm most proud of in my life uh, that I have ever done professionally. And, uh, I'm putting my heart into it and I would love more people to check it out because I really think it's special. I really do. Um, so check out the dungeon run on YouTube as an audio podcast or on caffeine live Wednesday nights. And find all my stuff at DaveChen.net. You can subscribe to my emails at DaveChen.net slash letters. Next week, we'll be discussing Ari Aster's new movie, Midsommar, Midsommar. Uh, and, sure. uh, yeah, that'll be a, that'll be a discussion about a movie that we'll have. So thanks for listening to the Slash Filmcast. We'll see you later.